Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Unsavory, where true crime meets food. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. And you're listening to Unsavory. So Becca and I recently did a presentation all about misleading food labels. And so I wanted to do an episode that tied into that same fascinating topic. Food labels, for the most part, are very tightly regulated, but there are many instances in which people have taken advantage of the labeling system, mostly to label a product as something it is not. And we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast before. So in our episodes on organic food fraud, the Codfather, and the European horse meat scandal. Those are the big ones. We definitely talked a little bit about superfood as a label and what that means in the avocado cartel episode. Right. But you covered the big ones. So for today's episode, I'm covering one of the most devastating circumstances to ever stem from a labeling mishap or scam which led to the largest mass poisoning in Spanish history. I'm talking about the Spanish cooking oil disaster, also known as toxic oil syndrome. And Becca, buckle up, because there really isn't a happy ending to this one. Oof. All right. (laughs) I guess I'm ready. Let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. 
The information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a physician or registered dietitian in your area. If you have a history of disordered eating, be advised that nutrition details will be discussed and take the steps you need to protect your recovery journey. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes on our website, unsavorypodcast.com. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through the Patreon link in our bio. If you could rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. For such a devastating and interesting story from a consumer perspective, there are very few digestible sources of information about the Spanish cooking oil disaster, also known as toxic oil syndrome. There are 300-page World Health Organization investigative documents, which isn't exactly good bedtime reading. (laughs) And there's plenty of research studies on the chemistry of the toxic compounds, but there really isn't a good synopsis out there of the social side of the event, which is what makes a good story, in my opinion. And this event continues to impact people's lives today to a pretty extreme degree. So I was surprised that I couldn't find any documentaries, podcasts, or even a good New York Times editorial about this topic. Granted, it happened in 1981, but I'm still surprised at how inaccessible information about this disaster is. And by the end of the story, I'll share one theory as to why that is. Yeah, 1981 isn't actually that long ago. I feel like I smell a a cover-up. I'd like to believe it's not, but some people think it is. There's your foreshadowing. (laughs) So for my sources, I used research papers, the hefty World Health Organization document, and translated articles from Spanish news outlets using Google Translate, which is not perfect. (laughs) (laughs) All of which are linked in the show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. Two big shout outs to a paper called Limits of Epidemiology and the Spanish Toxic Oil Syndrome by Benedetto Terracini. And the Spanish Toxic Oil Syndrome 20 Years After Its Onset, a Multidisciplinary Review of Scientific Knowledge by Gelpi et al. In May 1981, a never-before-seen combination of devastating physical symptoms broke out in the Torrejón region of Madrid in central Spain. 
and quickly became an epidemic. Throughout the course of the epidemic, nearly 30,000 people would develop symptoms. A confirmed 300 people died in the early days, with estimates as high as 5,000 deaths over the following decade. And thousands would live the rest of their lives with devastating physical limitations, including chronic pain, limb deformities, liver disease, scleroderma, which is the hardening of the skin, bone deformations, premature aging, paralysis, and cachexia. Wow. Whatever this is, it sounds terrible already. It's awful. And it all started on May 1st, 1981, when an eight-year-old boy, Jamie Vaquero Garcia, suddenly fell ill and died in his mother's arms on the way to La Paz Hospital in Madrid. The family had taken Jamie to the doctor earlier in the day after noticing he had some respiratory symptoms, and he was prescribed cough syrup and told to go to the hospital if things got worse, which they did. Even if Jamie had made it to the hospital, nursing and medical staff were already shocked and overwhelmed by an influx of people with respiratory symptoms that they'd never seen before. When the Viquero family arrived at the hospital, the doctors learned the entire family was experiencing these symptoms. Jamie's five brothers and sisters were also ill. Doctors had them all brought in and put one of the girls into intensive care. The other four children were transferred to Madrid's Infectious Disease Hospital, Hospital Del Rey, where doctors began treating them with antibiotics for what they thought was atypical pneumonia. Jamie and his family lived in a neighborhood in Torrejón, where seemingly overnight many neighbors had begun to fall mysteriously ill. The initial symptoms were flu-like. Fever, breathing difficulties, vomiting, and nausea, with patients soon developing pulmonary edema, the buildup of fluid in the lungs, skin rashes, and muscle pain. Rumors started to swirl about where this mysterious illness could have come from. One of the earliest theories was the U.S. military air force base nearby. Whispers of possible food poisoning from onions, strawberries, asparagus, and chicken were also suggested. Early reports that the disease might even be carried by cats, dogs, and birds led to the slaughter of many pets and livestock. Oh, no. I know. I hate when they do that. Without a definitive answer, the media and citizens formed their own best guesses. And soon, more plausible theories would emerge. Meanwhile, at the hospital, Dr. Antonio Murrow arrived at work the following morning, and he was alarmed to be told that these new patients were being treated for pneumonia despite their atypical presentation. He suspected almost immediately that this was not pneumonia. This went on for a few days, and Dr. Murrow soon told the media his leading theory. He believed the mysterious outbreak was due to food poisoning. And he was not the first to float this theory. Another physician, Dr. Peralta, the head of endocrinology at La Paz Hospital, had already told a newspaper that the symptoms of the illness were best described as poisoning by organophosphates. I feel like I should know what that is, but I don't. What is it? <laughs> so organo organophosphates are a group of pesticides that are used in agriculture, which mm. can be dangerous with high levels of exposure. And some of the early symptoms of this mysterious illness were similar to organophosphate toxicity. Okay, gotcha. After Dr. Peralta floated this theory publicly, he allegedly received a call from the Ministry of Health ordering him to say nothing more about the epidemic until a source could be identified and verified. Dr. Murrow was in full investigative mode for the food poisoning theory. 
He produced maps of the outbreak neighborhoods and believed that whatever was causing the symptoms was being sold at local weekly street markets, which were set up in different neighborhoods on different days. This made the most sense because the casualties were all coming from the apartment blocks of the communities and towns surrounding the capital, but almost no one from Madrid itself appeared to be affected at this time. Using this information, Dr. Murrow was able to successfully predict the location of the next wave of outbreaks, so he was definitely on to something. Dr. Murrow also questioned relatives of those afflicted with the mystery illness and told them to try and remember exactly what the victims might have eaten that other unaffected family members might not have eaten. And they quickly had a leading offender. Salads. Oh my gosh. I know where this story is going because you've already mentioned that it's an oil disaster, but I feel like salads get off so easily when it comes to food poisoning, but they can be such a big offender. Mm -hmm. And romaine lettuce is constantly just dishing out E. coli. And here we are just paying $8.99 for it in Canada. (laughs) But yeah, no, I'm I'm not surprised that the offender is salads necessarily. I know. They seem so innocent, right? It's, it's a salad. It's good for you. But they are, you know, they're high moisture and they're often carrying bacteria if they're not washed properly. Mm-hmm. Do you know what gave you food poisoning in Mexico? No, I have no idea, but likely a taco since that's all I was eating. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I had food poisoning pretty badly. Yeah. Oh dear. Okay. <laughs> but really maybe bad. not a salad. <laughs> maybe not, but could have been the garnish on my taco. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Who knows? And that's the thing with food poisoning. It's hard to tell. Yeah. I feel like sometimes you do develop like an aversion to the food without even knowing. Like, I've had so much food poisoning. (laughs) I have eaten too much food from the street in my life. (laughs) Um, And like sometimes I have like developed an aversion to the thing that I think may have given me food poisoning. But in this case, I still wanted tacos. Yeah, fair. (laughs) Okay, so salads were the likely offender for food poisoning, but, you know, there can be a lot of components in a salad. The veggies, the cheese, maybe meat, and the dressing. So Dr. Murrow's main hypothesis, much like Dr. Peralta, was that the poisoning was caused by tomatoes containing organophosphate residues. After publicly reporting his theory on May 15th, Dr. Murrow was allegedly suddenly informed that he was relieved of his duty as hospital director with immediate effect. That's pretty suspicious. Right. And of course, there's very little information about his dismissal. I have no idea why or if it was justified or if there's more of a backstory there. But the timing seems less than ideal. Mm -hmm. The Spanish government was in full panic mode at this point. Nearly a full month into the epidemic, nothing had turned up to explain the strange symptoms and people wanted answers. A plausible answer came from Dr. Juan Oliver director of the Hospital Infantil, who told the government he'd found the cause of the epidemic. He'd asked 210 of the children in his care, and apparently they'd all consumed cooking oil. This theory seemed sound, and the government accepted it fairly quickly. After all, adulterated olive oil was nothing new in Spain, where illicit oils could be purchased for much cheaper. On June 10th, an official announcement was made on late-night television— informing the public that the epidemic was most likely caused by chemical contamination of illicitly manufactured rapeseed oil that had been used for years as a cheap alternative to expensive olive oil. So the culprit was 
canola oil? Yeah, essentially, yes. Canola oil is the genetically modified version of rapeseed oil. And canola is often used for food-grade oils, while rapeseed is often used for industrial purposes. Mm. And just as a sidebar, can we please rebrand rapeseed oil? Yeah, I agree. I don't even like saying the name. It's cringy even just to hear. Yeah, it's time for a, a new name. After the announcement that cooking oil was the culprit, the epidemic actually quickly dropped off. The peak of the epidemic was reached in mid-June with approximately 600 hospital admissions per day. But following the announcement, new admissions dropped sharply as people discarded their cooking oils. So this rapid decline would actually act as further evidence that adulterated rapeseed oil was the cause of the epidemic. This theory would be further supported by community surveys that followed, but because the government had already made the announcement that it was cooking oil, any dietary information that was collected from then on was inevitably biased. Just when it was starting to feel like the epidemic was finally over, the chronic phase began. So this epidemic had three different clinical phases. We have the acute phase in which those presented to the hospital with atypical pneumonia symptoms, cough, fever. Then the intermediate phase developed in which more serious symptoms like blood clots, pulmonary hypertension, and edema, cramps, muscle pain started to appear. And finally, the chronic phase, which was characterized by cachexia, muscle wasting, liver disease, scleroderma, that's the hardening of the skin again, limb deformities, and neuropathy, which is a general term for nerve conditions. No such infectious or toxic syndrome with these exact symptoms had ever been recorded before. And 42 years later, many of these victims still suffer on a daily basis. Jeez, what was in this oil? That's an excellent question. And one that still hasn't been answered with 100% certainty. But we'll get there. Three weeks after the television announcement, the health ministry allowed families to hand in their supposedly contaminated oil to be replaced with pure olive oil. This exchange program was allegedly mishandled, with few authentic records kept of who was exchanging what, or whether the oil actually came from an affected household or an unaffected household. So people were kind of just like, great, free olive oil. Yeah, I feel like that seems like the biggest oversight ever. Like, who's overseeing this exchange program and why weren't they documenting anything? Yeah, I know that some sort of documentation was done. I don't know the details of it, but I do know that they were able to use some of the samples to compare to oils in studies where they tried to reproduce the oils. But I think they had a lot of like bunk samples and no idea if it came from a household that was just trying to get free olive oil or a household right. that was actually affected. That would have saved so much time. So much time. But because the expense of olive oil was guaranteed in return, I think most people simply handed in any oil they could find, even motor oil. Most of the oil that likely caused the epidemic was actually never available for scientific analysis because once the announcement was made, most families just discarded the oil. Right. But this did help create a repository of oils, which did turn out to be an important tool for later studies. Some of the samples did show the presence of toxic substances in much higher quantities than normal, 
which would kickstart a decades-long investigation into how these substances could have been formed and then how they could have caused this never-before-seen illness. In March 1983, so two years after, almost two years after the first case, the World Health Organization convened in Madrid to review the epidemiological, clinical, and toxicology findings of the epidemic. By 1987, the ongoing epidemiological investigation would lead to the development of the leading theory as to how this could have happened. Rapeseed oil is very similar to canola oil, except rapeseed oil is intended exclusively for industrial use and not safe for human ingestion. This poisonous oil was sold for several months to unsuspecting working-class families without any oversight or control. And greedy importers and distributors had likely been diverting oil that was imported from France to be used industrially in the iron and steel industries and rebranding it as olive oil and sunflower oil for human consumption. This oil was sold in plastic jugs for a bargain price at the street markets in the neighborhoods surrounding Madrid. Yeah, what a bargain. It seemed like Here's a bargain. A chronic disease. Yeah. By January 1987, those who had been affected by toxic oil syndrome were six years into their daily struggle with symptoms, and many others continued to grieve the losses of their loved ones. The public was still fearful that something like this could happen again, as olive oil fraud was not a new development in Spain. Wait, so one sec. I Okay, how long do they think that people were actually consuming the rapeseed oil for? Because I know that, that the investigation seemed to span over a couple of years, but was it that long? So no, the investigation spanned decades, but the actual ingestion of this particularly toxic batch of fraudulent oil seems like it was around a month to one and a half months. Oh, that's it, eh? Yeah, not too long. So the first symptoms showed up around May 1st, and it does seem like after ingestion, the symptoms showed up pretty quickly. And then the announcement was made around June 10th, and then the cases started to drop off. Hmm. But those that were struggling multiple years in were and still are dealing with the chronic phase of the illness. That's terrible. It really is. So in 1987, thousands of survivors began to organize themselves into a group called We Keep Living. I say that with a bit of a question mark because... With Google Translate, I got different options. Like, we're still alive. We keep living. So I'm not 100% sure what the translation is. Same sentiment. Same sentiment. And they advocate for survivors' rights and for criminal prosecution. So on March 30th, 1987, what would be known as the Spanish Trial of the Century began at the Casa de Campo. This would be the longest trial in the history of Spain, with Judge Alfonso Barcala leading the trial for 37 defendants from the oil industry. Victims and loved ones crowded at the door and craned their necks to get a glimpse of the action. And so began a trial that would last 15 months with testimony from hundreds of victims and relatives of those who had died from the illness and would take another 11 months to reach a verdict. Of the 37 defendants, only 13 would receive charges. The harshest sentences went to oil importer Juan Manuel Bengochia and oil distributors Ramon Ferrero and George Pitch. The three were convicted of gross professional negligence for importing and distributing fraudulent oil at local markets. Prosecutors say that the men conspired in the spring of 1981 to sell rapeseed oil 
that had been denatured with aniline dye and intended for industrial use only. And they were selling it as, of course, a cheap olive oil. Bengochia and Pitch were also convicted of violating the public health code, and Ferrero was found guilty of fraud. Of the 37 defendants, not one single person was found guilty of manslaughter. Wow. I had a really, really hard time finding clear information about the sentencing and any details about, you know, who received prison time. But regardless, I don't think it was enough. And at the time, Spain actually didn't have jury trials. So there was no jury. It was just the judge doing the sentencing. And I do wonder Mm -hmm. if the outcome would have been different if they had. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the public was outraged, so. Yes, yes. The victims and the public were absolutely outraged. Special riot police had to be called in to clear the courtroom. Police outside fired rubber bullets into the air to disperse the protesting crowds, who allegedly broke windows as they tried to get back inside the courtroom. Thankfully, no injuries were reported from this riot. The judges also ordered payment of compensation in the equivalent of about $125,000 to the relatives of each person who died of poisoning, and sums ranging from about $1,250 to $750,000 to the survivors, depending on the severity of their permanent injuries. Wait, so people got less, families got less if their relatives passed away? Yeah, seems like it. Doesn't that seem a little... Seems a little backwards. backwards. Yep. <laughs> yes, it does. But I guess like if it was a much higher sum based on severe permanent injuries, it might be to cover their ongoing medical bills and like support needs. True, true, true. As of 1989, the Spanish government had paid about $400 million in indemnities and health care for those still suffering from the effects of the illness. And that was in 1989. So you can only imagine how much has been paid out since then, although I could not find an exact figure. And how much did the guilty have to pay up, or did they? I can't remember. There were fines, but to, they they seemed like such, such small sums compared Considering to, the government yeah. had to pay out over $400 million. Yes, definitely. Jesus. I know. Despite the trial, which many feel was an unsatisfactory outcome, that isn't the only reason why conspiracy theories still swirl to this day about what really caused toxic oil syndrome. Despite the formation of investigative committees, including the World Health Organization Scientific Committee for the Toxic Oil Syndrome, the exact cause of the illness remains somewhat of a mystery to this day. There is a strong leading theory But some questions still remain, and that's saying a lot since over two decades, a heroic amount of scientific effort has gone into the identification of the causal agent and determining the pathology of toxic oil syndrome. So hundreds of research studies have been conducted embracing epidemiology, toxicology, clinical medicine, in vitro and in vivo studies, and most recently, immunology. The leading theory is that the oil was denatured with 2% aniline, which is an industrial commodity chemical, then illegally refined to remove the aniline and finally mixed with edible oils before being sold to consumers. Somewhere in this process, the batch of oil formed fatty acid esters of PAP, which has been found in significantly higher proportions in the oils consumed in 1981. PAP stands for 3 n 
phenylamino, 1,2-propanediol. So I'm going to stick with PAP. In studies, they've been able to recreate the refinement process or what they suspect is the refinement process and synthesize oil using the same techniques as the ones suspected for the bad batches. And they've been able to obtain similarly high levels of PAPs. So further oil samples from 1981 often contained three different types of PAPs. So this seems promising. There's higher levels, there's multiple different types. But when these three PAPs were given to laboratory animals, one was shown not to be acutely toxic. One was toxic only after injection, but not after ingestion. And one was toxic only after injection of very, very high doses. So none of these three substances has been able to be definitively linked to toxic oil syndrome. Although due to obvious ethical reasons, they actually can't test them on humans, which could have very different results. Yeah, absolutely. But in rodents, it did not have a similar effect. Yeah, exactly. So it's not, they're not able to definitively link. It's kind of like the leading theory with the most evidence, but not proven. Not Mm. proven without a shadow of a doubt. But the available epidemiological research and findings indicated causality to the point where it was legally accepted by the Spanish court in 1987. So legally and with the World Health Organization, this is the top theory. Right. Add to this that there aren't actually any evidence-based alternative theories. The pap esters from the aniline denaturation during the illicit manufacturing process seems highly plausible. Yet, there are many articles in the Spanish media and even one in The Guardian that propose the idea that the World Health Organization and Spanish government engaged in an elaborate cover-up using adulterated oil as a scapegoat. And there is no evidence to support this. But let's discuss it anyways, because... From what I could gather from Spanish news articles, public opinion does seem to be a bit divided. And who doesn't love a good conspiracy theory? It makes for a good story, but uh, buckle up. This one's pretty intense. So the article in The Guardian is called Cover Up, and it was written by an investigative journalist, Bob Wuffenden, who investigated toxic oil syndrome in the 1980s. Wuffenden calls the Spanish oil disaster, quote, prototype contemporary scientific fraud, end quote, as he shares his opinion that the disaster had nothing to do with oil. Wuffenden argues that fraudulent oil would only help boost Spain's own olive oil industry, as people would stop buying the cheap stuff if it was suspected to be unsafe. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Wuffenden seems to support Dr. Murrow's original theory about the tomatoes and organophosphates, and he proposed that revealing this information to the public would have devastated Spain's tomato industry. The tomatoes in question would have hailed from Almeria in the southeast corner of Spain, which was once a desert area, and the crops required the assistance of nutrients, fertilizers, and pesticides to grow. Wuffenden writes, quote, Although exactly what happened may never be known, it is likely that one farmer had used the chemicals too liberally or had harvested the crop too quickly after applying them. Neither would have been surprising. Some of the farmers were illiterate and would have had difficulty with the instructions for use on the containers of chemicals. End quote. Wuffenden also calls into question the quality of the epidemiological studies that point towards the oil theory. Okay, okay. So that initial doctor may have been 
right all along. Possibly. Possibly. Do you believe this tomato theory? Well, I can't believe it because there's no actual evidence to support the theory. And while some of the symptoms of organophosphate toxicity do overlap with some of toxic oil syndrome, there are differences. Plus, I really would like to believe that when the World Health Organization and some of Europe's top scientists put two decades of their life's work and effort into research and release a 300-page public document, it's not just an elaborate cover-up. Right. But it's not necessarily a cover-up if they're just not coming to the conclusion Mm -hmm. that the, like, the rapeseed oil was the was inconclusive right because the rodent studies like they did all the research Mm -hmm. and probably with really good intention but they weren't getting the results that they needed to prove that it was the rapeseed either for sure but i think much even like a criminal investigation if it was going to be good science you have to look into all the suspects Mm -hmm. and if for some reason that avenue wasn't explored intentionally and then you consider the economic implications of both taking down the fraudulent oil industry and protecting the tomato industry. There's like a twofold economic incentive to not investigate tomatoes. So scandalous. It is scandalous, but I think the toxic oil theory has more merit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to trust the leading doctors. And this is the leading theory about what caused this. It's called toxic oil syndrome. But I do wonder if the fact that the evidence is still inconclusive. I wonder if that's the reason that it's hard to find a lot of information about this event. Right. Makes sense. Given that this occurred 42 years ago now, it does seem unlikely that alternative theories will continue to develop at this point. And what really matters at the end of the day is that victims still remain devastated by the mark that toxic oil syndrome has left on their lives. So very recently, just in October of 2021, Six victims occupied a premier Madrid art museum with a sign that read, 40 years poisoned and condemned to live as in 1981 because of the abandonment of the government. Mm. In a public statement, the members of We Keep Living threatened to end their lives by taking pills if the government did not meet their demands to meet with the prime minister and provide additional money for medical expenses. I don't know the full outcome of that, but I do know the protest ended without any lives being lost, so I do hope that their demands were met. And overall, I find this story so sad and so unsatisfying. It's a devastating instance of mass poisoning of innocent people with an incomplete answer despite decades of scientific investigation which is a bit of a sad reality sometimes when it comes to situations like this. It's not always so easy to determine exactly what happened. But one very small positive, like with many of these stories, is that toxic oil syndrome called attention to the need to strengthen food safety regulations and their enforcement, and for consumers to purchase from reputable sources as often as possible. Yeah, it's sad that it took such a tragedy to bring attention to food safety regulations, but I feel like that is classically what happens. Mm -hmm. And I do find it super suspicious that I knew nothing about this before today and that the like media coverage has been so limited. And it really does make me wonder why. (laughs) I know. Did the men 
who were like convicted and stuff, did they ever like confess or anything or were they not guilty, like deeming not guilty? So I don't know because there's almost no information about them or even details about the trial online. Really, all I could find for the actual trial is just brief one sentence mentions of their name in an article, but like no pictures, Mm. no backstory, no previous convictions, nothing. Not even a Wikipedia page, which like for the Spanish trial of the century. What? I know. Like no Wikipedia page? No Wikipedia page. Toxic oil syndrome. Get that going, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. But toxic oil syndrome does have a Wikipedia page, but it's small, like two paragraphs small. Wow. And barely any backstory. Like it's Truly, I was pretty shocked at how difficult I thought this would be like, oh, you know, a a kind of easy one to cover. It's a it's it's an event, a historical event, which does tend to be easier to do research for. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. Yeah. So I'm curious as to why this is, because this is a huge, shocking story and it's not really present in the Western media. Right. Well, it was a very tragic, but an interesting story. And you did a great job covering it. So thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. I feel educated. Great way to start my morning. Yeah, not too depressing. Eh, Pretty depressing. (laughs) It's pretty depressing. Yeah, pretty depressing. I hope your next episode has a happier ending. Still not sure what I'm going to cover, but I was thinking something diet related. So probably not. Yeah, not likely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsavory. You can find all of the references and materials used to put this episode together in our show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends. This is the best way that you can support us for free. If you'd like to donate to our podcast, you can sign up as a donor through our Patreon link in our bio. For more information, follow us on Instagram at unsavorypodcast. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at unsavorypod at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Jeff Devine. Learn more at Jeff Devine Sound on Instagram. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.